Well, welcome again to City Life. Uh, we welcome you again and again because we are excited that you're here and you've joined us as, as they already shared. You chose a good weekend to be here. Uh, not only are we coming out of what was a lot of fun last week when we had fun before the 4th with inflatables and a food truck out front, but this week, not only do we have Discovering City Life going on, but we are launching our summer series. It's called Your Cell, Your Soul, Eternal Wisdom for a Smartphone Age. And tonight, just like every other night, just like we did last week, even with abbreviated service, we're going to turn to Scripture. Amen? And uh, whether you got your Bible with you, there's Bibles in the pews, um, or maybe you're going to swipe there on your phone. Maybe it looks like one of those apps. Uh, We are going to Job 28. Yes, we are going to Job. In a series about technology, we're going to one of the oldest books in the Bible. (laughs) Job 28, it's it's. It's interesting because we find like this ode or, or poem to technology and, and, and mankind here when he's talking about wisdom and understanding. Let me actually read it so you know what I'm talking about. But I'm going to read bits and pieces. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, verses 10 through 15, and then the end of it, verses 23 through 28. It says in Job 28, verse 1, People know where to mine silver and how to refine gold. They know where to dig iron from the earth and how to smelt copper from rock. They know how to shine light in the darkness and explore the farthest regions of the earth. And they search in the dark for ore. They sink a mine shaft into the earth far from where anyone lives. They descend on ropes swinging back and forth. To verse 10 it says, they cut tunnels in the rocks and uncover precious stones. They dam up the trickling streams and bring to light the hidden treasures. But Do people know where to find wisdom? Where can they find understanding? No one knows where to find it, for it is not found among the living. It's not here, says the ocean, nor is it here, says the sea. It cannot be bought with gold. It cannot be purchased with silver. And in verse 23, it says, God alone understands the way to wisdom. He knows where it can be found, for he looks throughout the whole earth and sees everything under the heavens. He decided how hard the winds would blow and how much rain should fall. He made the laws for the rain and laid out a path for the lightning. Then he saw wisdom and evaluated it. He set in place and examined it thoroughly. And this is what he says to all humanity. The fear of the Lord is true wisdom, and to forsake evil is real understanding. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, God, for what we're going to begin to unpack tonight. God, we thank you that your Bible is true and relevant, and it speaks to today. It speaks to whatever each one of us walked in here tonight in the midst of. God, you want to speak to it through your word. God, so I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would do that tonight. God, speak to each one of us, and God, draw us closer to you. And everybody said, amen. So we do come together every week to pursue God through worship and to pursue God through his word, but we've said it a million times since we launched, that if our faith is solely inward focused, then it's out of focus, that there's work that God calls us to do outside of these four doors. So monthly we do that. We do stuff with Micah's backpack where we feed students with food anxiety, but we also, uh, through Marina's job with Operation Blessing, we're able to bless people at College Square, a neighborhood that's really right around the corner from here. And uh, I was talking to the woman that has lived there longer than any other resident. She's lived there for decades. She's raised her kids there. They've since graduated college. They're getting jobs now. Her name is Ava. And I was talking to her a couple weeks ago now, and uh, I was kind of lamenting how I didn't have phone numbers for various people in the neighborhood. Like, I don't know so-and-so's phone number. I don't know so-and-so's phone number. And she just starts rattling off numbers. And I was like, it took me a couple seconds. I was like, oh, she knows 
these are phone numbers. Like, she knows all these people's phone numbers. Like, just off the top of her head. That's old school. Right? Like, I know two phone numbers right now, my mom's and my wife's. Anybody dare to say they don't really know their spouse's phone number by heart? Anybody? No? Sam? Hey, you know what? I respect that because when you're, hey, sometimes it's a struggle. I remember when I was a newlywed, I didn't know it until we just punched it in for, like, the food line MVP. That's how I learned it. I had to punch my wife's phone number in over and over again. So there you go. Hey, Sam, here's a book. It's called Struggles. It's about the subject we're preaching on. It's by Craig Groeschel. So there you go, sir. And thank you for serving. They look good in that blue, don't they? But, yeah, so I can remember high school. I knew the number to the pizza place, the library. I knew my parents' phone number clearly, uh, probably a dozen different people in school. It was just up here. I knew it. And I remember I used to carry around 35 cents just in case I was out and I needed to use a pay phone. My mom would need to come pick me up, something like that. But then... Luckily, eventually, cell phones were invented. The first ones looked a little something like this. The Gordon Gecko, Wall Street, black bathrobe on the beach, ginormous brick of a cell phone, uh, something like this. Yeah, that can go to the props on the table. Here, Corey, catch. <laughs> but eventually, the cell phone got introduced. And then eventually, in 2007, 10 years ago, Right? Apple released the first iPhone 10 years ago this summer. They're about to release the 10th anniversary one. They're thinking sometime in September. And uh, since 10 years ago, 1 billion iPhones have been sold. Not smartphones, not smart devices, not iP iPhones have been sold. 1 billion. It's the first time in history that there are more smart devices on the planet, smartphones, things that uh, take in data, then there are people. It's crazy. And these aren't just like little trinkets and toys. Like the iPhone I use has 30,000 times the processing speed of the 70-pound computer that got Apollo 11 to the surface of the moon. That's crazy. And it's in my pocket. And it, on May 3rd of 2016, the editors of Time magazine, they named the iPhone the single most influential gadget of all time saying that it fundamentally changed our relationship to computing and information, a change likely to have repercussions for decades to come. And I read that for the first time at some point last year, and I started thinking, okay, what are the repercussions? Because clearly there are uh, impacts that it has on us and the way we live, and how does that affect following God and keeping Christ at the center of my life, and, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Because we live in a digital age that's so thick with innovation, that it comes in waves, and sometimes we're blind to it. And we want to adapt and adopt it because we don't want to be left behind, be left irrelevant. But there is a current to this stream of technology, the waves of updates and new inventions. And if we don't know which direction God is calling us in it, then we can be led astray by it. You know, there, there are repercussions. But again, the question is, how are they changing us? And what does the Bible have to say about it? And the, the church's response can be wild. I was looking up uh, sermon titles about technology uh, when I was looking to podcast about this, and they're my two favorites, Modern Technology and the Mark of the Beast and Clouds of Darkness, the Rise of the Technological Antichrist. <laughs> I didn't listen to either of them, but I wrote both titles down. You know, sometimes we see new technology as like the coming of the end, or it's this huge problem, or it's, or it's a sign of the apocalypse, but 
Technology is not some monster coming to consume us. Technology is a mirror. It reflects who we are. Like every other one of our habits, our cell phone habits, they expose our heart. And this whole series, maybe you're hesitant, maybe you're like, pause. It's not a call to go back to to dumb phones, if you want to call them that, smartphones, dumb phones, flip phones, whatever, or, or, or boycott social media or rage against the machine or build bunkers before the matrix comes, any of that. And it's not going to be looking back at a quote-unquote better time of vinyls and rotary phones. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, don't say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. God's truth is just as good now, and we can still apply it to where we are today. But, I mean, you even look at the Apple logo on the back of that computer right there. It reminds us of the garden. Reminds us of Genesis. You know, there's some people, I'm sure, in those sermons that I quoted, the two titles where they might say, uh, some have said that that's pointing back to the original sin. It's pulling us away from God like technology is evil. That's a journey we're not going on tonight. But it does. It reminds us of the garden. It reminds us where God created for six days, and he created man, and then he said that all of it was good. And within man was this potential in us to see potential in creation and create. We're created in the image of God. We are creative beings, and we create, and we're still creating, and I believe that it's still good. You know, it can be used for bad, but it's still good. When I started studying for this sermon series, I went to the internet to research. I, uh, I podcasted sermons on my phone, and I used the Evernote app to organize my thoughts on various devices, and I opened up a Word document and typed it up for hours on end, and I, I get cramps in my hand easy. So I I appreciate a good keyboard. I like to type. Right now we're live streaming this service off of a smartphone. We don't have a handy dandy camera yet. We're using a smartphone. And uh, we've had people tune in random places like Oklahoma, as far as Venice, Italy, that have, have mentioned that they've watched us through a live stream. It's remarkable. You know, churches that reach hundreds of people can reach thousands. Churches that are reaching thousands can reach millions. The reach we have through technology is remarkable. And you certainly don't need to be a a pastor or a church to feel technology's benefits. What are some apps you use day-to-day that just bless you? Like, like, let's not be super spiritual. Apps you use day-to-day that you love, that uh, help you out. The Starbucks app. Get you some rewards. Denise. Messenger. Yup. Kindle, Waze, amen to that. Nike, Nike running. Turning point. See, I'm going I'm to podcast this not to listen to what I said, but to listen to all these answers. Turning point. Now that it's on, I can go back and listen. Anybody else? Spotify. Yes, sir. Pinterest. Planning Center. Hey, <laughs> shout out to the worship team. <laughs> ESPN. Sorry, what was it? <laughs> oh, the Bible app, you version. Yeah. Jesus isn't the right answer, but that probably is. Well, a decade ago, Steve Jobs at this press conference for the iPhone, he said we, uh, that it was three revolutionary products in one. It's funny because a decade later, I feel like it's replaced dozens if not hundreds of products. I don't need an alarm clock anymore. I don't need a guitar tuner that's on my phone. I don't need 
uh, a roadmap. I don't need a calculator. I don't need a Garmin. Those things cost hundreds of dollars to track my runs. Uh, I don't even need a weatherman with a face and a name to give me the weather. I don't even need to go to an ATM to deposit checks anymore, and that still freaks me out. Like, something could go wrong here. I don't know what, but uh, it's like the personal assistant. I don't have the money to hire. It is the wingman when I'm driving alone. It's the giver of directions when I'm driving lost. But it's also a double-edged sword. I own a smartphone, and it, it's benefited me. I've benefited from it, but I've also abused it. You know, uh, uh, it can make my life more convenient, but at the same time, it can make my life more convoluted and confusing and packed. It can be a, a pesk to my productivity. It can be the pinnacle of procrastination. It can be just a plague of buzzes and beeps to the point where, uh, uh, what is it called? Phantom vibration syndrome is recognized by doctors and PhDs as like a hallucination because our cell phones have become a part of us in that way. We're like cyborgs. <laughs> phones can also represent the inescapable pole of work for many of us. A digital dictator that pulls us out of our rest and anytime we want to pause. But again, it's not some monster that's come to terrorize us. It's a tool. Tools are an extension of ourselves. The smartphone is an extension of my head and my heart. They are what we make of them, whether it's a tool or a trinket or a tyrant. Like all of the habits we develop in life, it reflects our heart. And if we don't walk in wisdom in all things, all things, including that, then those things that we consume can sometimes consume us. Those things that we think we have sometimes actually have us. And maybe you would say tonight, <laughs> I don't even have a smartphone, so it's just going to be a waste of my time this summer. But don't worry, this isn't a sermon series about apps and updates. It's about our application of Scripture to really what are timeless issues. We're talking about situational awareness, talking about authenticity, talking about the power of our words, talking about the power of pausing and resting and, and, and recognizing that God is Lord, power of, of hope in a culture where the sky is, quote-unquote, always falling, you know, conversations about smartphones, they don't raise new problems or, or, or new issues that aren't already addressed in Scripture. They address timeless perennial issues, and thankfully God's Word is also timeless and perennial, and it cuts to the heart of every matter. You know, the Bible's wisdom shows ongoing relevance, even in the smartphone age. and Really, technological innovations and inventions, they're theological invitations to, to relook at what we believe and how do we walk it out? How do we practice that? Because there is wisdom for this age. The Bible can help us live smartphone smart. And our call, it's not to enjoy our phones less, but the question is how do I enjoy all the gifts of technology and keep Christ in his proper place over all things at the center of all things? Because we know Jesus Christ's proper place in our life through Scripture. And I think we would confess it with our mouth that, again, it's overall things at the center of our life. But then the question becomes, what's the proper place for all this technology? What is the proper place in our homes? What's the proper place in our lives? You know, when Steve Jobs released the first iPhone, he didn't let his kids have one. And he settled into a, uh, just a, a system where their screen time was monitored because he realized, like we found, that there are repercussions. And it's a, a question that Andy Crouch poses in the intro to his book, uh, The Tech Wise Family. And I was going to think of a creative way to give this away, but uh, the guy over at Tech tonight, Tyler Lee, his family's about to be a family of three, upgraded to a family of four. So we'll give this to you guys here. Emily's right here, so I'll give it to her. 
but that's a great book. Sorry, as I hand it off to her. Techwise Family by Andy Crouch. And in the intro, he poses this question. What is the proper place for technology in our home? Because he would do something. I haven't done it with Raj yet. Maybe you do it with your kids where he turns on music. And he says, all right, you guys have 10 minutes for everything to get back in its proper place. Whatever's not in its proper place by the end of 10 minutes goes in the trash can. Anybody ever done this with your kids? Does it work? All right, good to know. (laughs) So the question he poses again is, okay, what is the proper place for technology? What is the smartphone's proper place? I remember when there were two phones in my house, one in the office, one in the kitchen. If I was in my room on the opposite end of the house and that phone rang, I had to run there before I went to the answering machine or I wasn't going to get it. And when I got there, I couldn't go back to my room with it because it had the curly cords that were perennially tangled. And if I walked too far, I would snap back like a rubber band and hit the wall like Phones definitely had a proper place then. But now you ask the question, what's their proper place now? And what wisdom can help us determine that? And as we introduce this series and we say that there's eternal wisdom for the smartphone age, the question we got to start with is, where do we find it? That passage in Job and in the New King James Version, it says, where shall wisdom be found? You know, the smartphone age puts this wealth of information at my fingertips, like in my pocket I can access Google and ask a question about anything, right? Those dumb questions that I don't want to ask Steph or ask other people that, you know, the the questions that plague you throughout life, but you don't want to really ask, like, do penguins have knees? Just random stuff. Why doesn't Tarzan have a beard? How do you spell weird? That word bothered me for years. Is I before E or E before I? I didn't have to ask anybody because I have Google in my pocket. I have access to all these answers at my fingertips, yet there are answers that are elusive, Answers like, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Answers like Job was asking, why do we experience suffering? How does this life make any sense in light of any greater context? That's the kind of wisdom we can't necessarily find in our devices. If wisdom, it brings order and coherence to our lives, which is what Job was looking for and the kind of wisdom it's talking about here, where do we find that wisdom? The question, where shall wisdom be found in Job 28, it's embedded within, again, this kind of hymn of sorts, this ode to technology and the innovations of mankind. And maybe you're like, bro, they're just talking about mining. (laughs) But mining was a huge industry at that time in the ancient world where those materials they harvested were the foundation for technological advancement. Yet with its celebration, Job 28 also warns that for all our devices, And all our technological advances, there's limits to its ability to help us find wisdom. As one author said about Job 28, we can be tech-savvy fools. And up to this point in Job, if you're familiar, he's heard the wisdom of his friends. He's imparted his own wisdom, and yet they find all of it lacking in terms of finding meaning. It all rings hollow, ultimately. And we, too... Man, with our phones, with our technology, with social media, we can get answers from so many sources so quickly at far greater frequency. And again, we can search the seemingly inexhaustible internet instantaneously. But where technology makes getting information easy, wisdom, as it did for Job, can also prove elusive for us. You know, the first half of Job 28, it considers the search for this wisdom. But the second half, it turns to considering the source. 
Because our quest for wisdom is not going to be found by human strength or ingenuity. True wisdom is not found under a mountain or in the sea, like it says in Job 28. It's not going to be found in the next device or technological invention. True wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. George Whitfield says, Jesus Christ must be your whole wisdom, your whole righteousness, your whole sanctification, or he will never be your full redemption. So maybe you're saying, that's the churchiest answer of all time, Jesus, right? <laughs> Where do we find wisdom? Jesus. So the question that begs, how shall we find it? Nicholas Carr, he's the author of The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. He wrote, once I was a scuba diver in a sea of words. Now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. I love that picture because it begs the question, when I read especially God's word, the very word of God, how has technology changed that? Do I go deep or do I just kind of skim the surface? You know, two psychologists, they put together a study to study reading comprehension uh, just with digital versus printed form. So they did something that was interesting. They took two groups and they gave the first group something to read in digital form. They gave the second group something to read in printed form. They gave them the same amount of time to read each thing. And at the end of that amount of time, they found with these two groups that uh, they had about the same measure of retention and comprehension. But then they took two brand new groups, did the same thing, but they got rid of the time limit. They said, all right, just read through what we give you, half digital, half printed. And what they found with this as they repeated it is that those that read the printed form, <laughs> they took about twice as long but remembered about twice as much. And it just shows this and other studies that digital readers, and when we read digitally, so often we just do it quickly. With digital text on our devices, we're conditioned to skim it and scroll quickly. But if you want to take something to heart, like this test showed, comprehend it and retain it, you got to linger over it. You got to take your time with it. But we've been conditioned to not linger over digital texts, but to swipe over them. Some have defined this generation's problem not as illiteracy, not being able to read, but illiteracy, not being able to determine in all the information and, and, and notifications that we take in what's truly important, what's truly significant, and for us, what's truly eternally significant. And again, this isn't a, a new problem. You turn back to Ecclesiastes 12, where we're turned to in a moment, and it speaks to the flood of text and information that was found thousands of years ago. We'll go to those verses in a second, but first I want to consider a quote we, we spoke on Weeks ago, when we looked at Rethinking Scripture, where Scott Swain says, because Scripture is the supreme locus of God's communication with the world, Christians are people of the book. And we looked at stats, you know, are we really people of the book? Are we reading the Bible? Are we turning to it? But that, you can podcast that. <laughs> but I would say that we are, we're people of the Bible verse. You know, like I love on Instagram, you can get these calligraphy Christianity, calligraphy verse, handwritten verses. And let me tell you, I love them. There was a point this past week, just wasn't feeling it. Somebody posted a, a, a verse from Acts, Paul speaking. It put wind in my sail. It got me through the day. This verse on Instagram, something so simple, just a posted verse on Instagram helped get me through that day. And let me tell you, I'm a former art major. I like things where you can 
Make it look pretty, hang it on the wall. Steph put a couple up near our front door of just calligraphy statements that I look at before I go outside. And I'm also a, a former graphic artist, so anything that can get us away from Comic Sans and papyrus fonts, I'm cool with that. So handwritten, nice calligraphy, that's nice. And again, it can be powerful. But partial truths and verses outside of their greater context, that can't become the equivalent of our daily bread. That's like if I eat and every time I put one food group and the same food group on my plate. Spiritually, it can't just be, uh, I don't want to say warm fuzzies or, or all the feels and, and nothing else. Where we get calligraphy, but without context. We get warmth without the warnings, devotions, without the doctrine. I, I don't know how you want to put it, but again, it has its benefits. But it also, it feeds something we're more and more prone to do in the digital age, which is parrot our faith from bits and pieces picked up here and there. Another thing I love on social media these days is where an entire sermon can be put into like 60 seconds. All the good points, the main illustration, maybe there's some music, maybe there's not, maybe they got the subtitles on the table, maybe they don't, but I always pause and I listen to those because I love it. And again, that can be powerful. That can help get me through the day. But we got to ask ourselves when it comes to reading the Bible, journeying through the Bible, reading through the Old Testament, going cover to cover so you can understand the greater context, the greater narrative, the greater story that these verses we like to highlight and point to comes out of, a lot of times that gets a hard pass. Again, you look at statistics that we looked at weeks ago. We may be people of the book, but are we turning to the book? Because, again, the Bible Again and again, it warns us that it can be misread, it can be mistaught, and that can be intentional or unintentional. So we should approach the Bible with care and full focus because a skill we desperately need in this culture is to be able to discern wisdom, test what's true or not. And again, this isn't a new problem. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 11 through 13, says the words of the wise are like goads. And some of y'all are moving for your phone now to Google what goads are. Did I misspell goats? No. Goads are what you would prod cattle with to get them to move. So now that we got that out of the way. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end. I love that the Amplified Version adds, so don't believe everything you read. And much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Now Ecclesiastes is an interesting book, but it's a book about finding the goodness of God while living in the vanity of this world. It's pretty much the complete opposite of Job, where he's suffering, he's been stripped of everything, but it's interesting that they come to the same conclusion. It's a conclusion that echoes Job 28, that a search for wisdom in this life is ultimately meaningless. Such goodness and wisdom is found only through God. It's only found through Jesus Christ. And there's a benefit, absolutely, to living in a world of information and literature that's at our fingertips. But there are also risks involved because people will never stop passing on information. Our phone will never stop giving us notifications if we've got those turned on and we'll forever feel called to keep up. But Ecclesiastes 12.12 says, much study wearies the body. You know, trying to continuously be relevant, be in the know, be on the cusp, that can wear you out. But I love that it says the end of the matter is fear God and keep his commandments. That obedience to God's eternal truth, it's, it's more than 
It's more important than our trying to feel relevant to the moment, than our social media status or keeping up with the latest notification. You know, Matthew Crawford, he's a, a writer and a, a study of culture, a senior fellow at UVA who studies culture. And he has this quote where he says, distractibility might be regarded as the mental equivalent of obesity. Just as food engineers have become experts in creating hyperpalatable foods by manipulating sugar, fat, and salt, the media have become omnipresent purveyors of well-engineered cultural marshmallows. I love that quote. Distractibility might be regarded as the mental equivalent of obesity, and we're all eating carefully constructed cultural marshmallows. But again, this isn't new. You turn to a book like Screwtape Letters, written in 1942 by C.S. Lewis. And, and mind you, it's written from a perspective of one demon to another on strategies to derail people that would be following God. And here in 1942, C.S. Lewis writes about what you could basically call uh, the nothing strategy. I'll put the tail end up on the screen, but I, I want to read a, a decent portion here where it says, it says, you can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a dead fire in a cold room. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. So at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here, I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. And nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why. And the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them. It's a powerful passage because these are timeless truths, but no generation has had access to distraction like we do. To be pulled in multiple, multiple directions. You know, we no longer stare at a dead fire with our faces pointed by warm colors. We stare at screens, our faces clouded by blue colors. You look at screen activity. I'm talking screen activity, uh, TVs, computers, smartphones, all, all things with screens. For the average American last year was 10 hours and 39 minutes a day. That's up one hour a day from just last year. And I think, man, that's not me. But then if I clocked how much time I work on my computer, check my phone, it adds up fast. We check our smartphones every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives on average. That's 81,500 times a year. And of 8,000 Christians that were surveyed in a, a separate survey, 73% say they check their phone before any kind of checking in with God or devotionals. Oliver O'Donovan, he's an author, he said, perhaps the greatest threat we face is that of living with short attention spans. Caught up now by one little explosion of surprise, now by another. Knowledge is never actually given to us in that form. It has to be searched for and pursued, as the marvelous poems on wisdom at the beginning of Proverbs tell us. Maybe you would say, man, he's talking about the greatest threat, right? Does this mean we should ditch our phones, get flip phones, get rid of phones altogether? No, again, they're tools. It all depends on how we use it. There's technological benefit to our phones and scripture that we're talking about tonight. Again, the Bible app, a.k.a. the YouVersion app, has been downloaded some 277 million times. It's got over 1,000 languages. It's 
got over 1,500 translations. It's got hundreds upon hundreds of Bible reading plans on it. And studies have shown, research has shown it again and again, and my life has shown that people track more faithfully reading their Bible when there's digital prompts and reminders, and then they read it. It's, it's a benefit. It's a technological benefit that we have that people without phones didn't have. And science or research has shown that it actually helps us. But whether we, sometimes I'll use the version app on my iPad or my phone, and sometimes I'll read it off a screen. Sometimes I'll have my phone here and my Bible here. Whether we read it off a screen, whether we read it off a printed page, we just need to be careful and read with care. You know, there's, there's technological benefits, but there's also eternal wisdom. And the eternal wisdom is simple. Slow down. Slow down. We're presented daily with like this hamster wheel of notifications and distractions and messages. And every once in a while, it helps to just step off of that and slow down. We can't let the Bible fall victim to our scrolling or, or skimming mentality. Because, again, if we want to take something to heart, we have to linger over it. So just practical advice that I, I know has helped in my life is if a scripture speaks to you and you're like, wow, that really spoke to me. Memorize it. Not talking. <laughs> There's some pastors like, yeah, I have... First Peter and Ephesians memorized all the way through. I'm talking like if there's a verse that speaks to you, be like, this week I want to memorize this. Because nothing drives those words to heart like pausing over each one and committing them to memory. And again, this isn't a new issue. The 17th century pastor Thomas Watson said that the reason we come away so cold from reading the word is because we don't warm ourselves at the fires of meditation. And that's in the 17th century. <laughs> we got to linger over God's truth, break it down in our minds and bring it home to our hearts. Proverbs 12, verse 1 says, to learn, you must love discipline. If we want to find wisdom, we have to discipline ourselves. And, man, just a practical discipline that I've recently walked in is I realized, hey, I don't have to just use airplane mode when I'm on a plane. Like, airplane mode can be used at other moments in life. Anybody realize that? I realize that if I turn my phone on airplane mode, when I go to God's word, or I, I know I want to pause and pray and, and read and, and seek God's face, I can just put my phone on airplane mode and I'm not going to be bothered. But I still, to this day, you put your phone on airplane mode, it's like when you don't know where your phone is, your, your flesh is screaming, what am I going to miss? What is, what is going to happen that I won't see or, or know about? Maybe the whole world will fall apart. But it's a reminder that, man, I can... I'm, the whole world's not going to crash like a plane just because I put my phone on airplane mode. And it's so funny. I'll come out of 30 minutes to an hour expecting like this flood. Sometimes it's nothing. It's a nice humbling reminder that I can step back, just exalt God and remember the world doesn't revolve around me. And sometimes I do come back to a half dozen texts, calls, voicemails, but I realize in that moment that so much of what I feel rushed to respond to, it can actually wait. The pressure we feel, the, the impulse we feel to respond to everything instantly, it, man, it, it can wait. Not that it always has to, but again, just airplane mode is a gift, y'all. That's free. <laughs> and there's really, there's no reason to rush through Scripture. Absolutely no reason. The Bible is not a book that we read from cover to cover and then throw back on the shelf. 
The Bible is a book we're called to walk in, spend time in, and be transformed by for the rest of our lives. So there's no rush. There's no rush. You can read 10 chapters, 10 words. If we meditate on it, if we think about it and take it to heart, man, that's what it's all about. The author Tom Rinke says that Bible reading is incredibly demanding work, yet I find much comfort and hope in knowing the Bible calls me to lifelong engagement. The Bible is not a book to get through, to read cover to cover and then put on a shelf. Neither is it a book to browse or skim. It is less a book and more a world of revelation in which we live and move and have our being. You know, if I could have the the worship team come up, we're going to close with worship, but it's funny because we think, man, how how are we going to deal with this technology? And then I think what Raj is going to be walking in, right, in the year 2050. And I was like, all right, let me look up what people think is going to be happening between 2025 and about 2050. We're close already. Things being delivered by drones. Clothes that like doubles as an exoskeleton by 2050. They're saying, yeah, that you'll be able to do things that you're not strong enough and it's going to help through your clothing. Virtual reality replacing textbooks. Augmented reality replacing smartphones. We'll basically all be Iron Man by 2050. But by the time Raj is an adult, it'll probably be one of those things where they just laugh even at the thought of having a smartphone, right? Let alone that we would worry about the issues or its impact. But the Bible's truth in the year 2015, whether we're all in Iron Man suits or not, will be just as relevant then as it is now. And so many of the issues we'll deal with then are the same issues we've been dealing with since the beginning of time. Because these habits, they simply reflect our heart are beautiful, yet broken, often hearts. And the Bible is, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Come on, may we slow down. And step out of the economy of notifications that we live in, the hamster wheel of distractions, and find real moments to let God speak to us through his word, through prayer, because there's wisdom. Again, we're not just talking smartphones. Whatever you walked in here tonight dealing with, God can speak to that. God wants to speak to that. And there's wisdom to be found for today. God, I pray that you would teach us what is true. God, make us realize what is out of place, like it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. God, may you give us the wisdom to put not just technology, but all our habits, all our pursuits, God, in their proper place so that we can keep you, Jesus, in your proper place. We echoed it in so many of the songs we started with tonight, just the, the verses from Philippians 2 where it says, God put him in the highest place, gave him the name above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, both in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, that's your proper place. God, I pray that we would be a people that keep you there. God, that we would be a people that with all our other habits and all our pursuits, you would be our chief pursuit. God, you would be our first love, our current love, our forever love. God, as we pursue you all of our days. And come on, can we stand and and worship and and lift Jesus up again? Put him again at that highest place in our lives. Worship his name as the name above every name. And if you need prayer, again, it might be about this. It might be about anything. 
going on in your life, then I'm right here. The Nawatnis are in the back corner. We're available for prayer. But come on, as a congregation, can we praise Jesus Christ, the name above every name. May our hearts bow before him in worship. Let faith arise. In spite of what I see, Lord, I believe. But help my unbelief, I choose to trust you. No matter what I feel, let faith rise. Oh, let faith rise. For my champion's not dead, he is alive. And he already knows my every need. And surely he You can 